Welcome to the Rennie Podcast, a podcast about everything real estate for the real estate interested. My name is Peter Edmonds, and I'm a member of the team here at Rennie. We're a real estate company of 300 people advising buyers and sellers from first-time condo purchasers to large-scale developers so they can make smart and informed real estate decisions. We made this podcast as a concise and consumable way to share our passion for homes, housing, community, and cities. We hope that this will spark the same curiosity in you that we have for everything real estate. All of the documents and links mentioned in this podcast are available on our website at rennie.com. As part of our discussions around planning and communities, today's podcast is going to answer the question, what's with all the condos? How Vancouver became a global model for city and community planning. We're going to start with a little history refresher, and then we're going to go through these key insights. Insight number one is that Vancouver focused on a living first strategy to transform and adapt for growth. And insight number two, we're going to talk about how planning focused on restabilizing and growing neighborhoods, helping to attract people from single family homes in suburbia to a bigger, more vibrant downtown. And this would not be a complete conversation if we didn't uh, discuss insight number three, which is that despite all the improvements, Vancouver still faces challenges. And we're going to talk about how planning thinking and future generations are working to tackle them. Joining us today to help us answer this question is Larry Beasley, a world-renowned urban planner, former director of planning for the city of Vancouver, and author of the books Vancouverism and Eco-Design for Cities and Suburbs. We've got some copies of Larry's book, Vancouverism, to give away, and I'll give some details at the end of the podcast on how you can get your hands on a free copy of that book. Larry, welcome to the Rennie Podcast. It's so great to have you. Thank you, Peter. It's good to be here. Excellent. Well, why don't you start by telling us a little bit more about who you are and what you do from a more more macro sense? Well, um, I'm, I consider myself an all-around urbanist. I, um, I practiced uh, city building, city design uh, in many places in the world. I'm a professor uh, of cities at the University of British Columbia. I'm actually the practice professor teaching the new and uh, budding planners of the practical side of our profession. And uh, I'm an author. I write, um, I've written several books on, on planning, but also... Um, other articles and I write op-ed pieces and other things. Yeah, well, we, uh, you know, we had uh, in your bio that, that, that we, we crafted before the show, we had retired in there and it's very clear that that's not the case. No, not yet, not yet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if ever, this seems, it's a lifelong passion that clearly, uh, uh, you know, lives in you. So um, why don't we start by having you set the scene for us, um, you know, what for what Vancouver was like before Expo. And Expo's often... Uh, referred to as a turning point for the city, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. And so maybe uh, maybe that's a great place to start this discussion. Well, it is a good place, and Expo is that moment uh, at which the city did do or began a pivot. Uh, if you look back before Expo uh, in the 70s and uh, and and early 80s, you saw a couple of things happening. Um, we were a very typical North American city. People were moving out to the suburbs. The inner city was in a bit of a malaise. Uh, our neighborhoods in the inner city were in deep trouble, as, as a matter of fact. The biggest thing that really hit us at that point was that our economy started to dramatically change very quickly. We moved from a resource-based economy, which we had had for over 100 years, that had globalized. The leadership had left the city by and large. Um, uh, forestry, mining, et cetera, was not 
driving the economy any further. And uh, we had to take stock and we had to decide what we wanted to be in the future. Now, there were some bright directions that were, you know, within that malaise that were very good for us. Uh, for example, uh, we had a, a council in the late 70s that had said no freeways, probably the most pivotal decision the city ever made. At the time, it was counterintuitive to good thinking. Uh, it turned out that other cities destroyed themselves. Or cut themselves in half. They quite cut themselves right? in half. They they destroyed a lot of development. They displaced mm -hmm. people, and we didn't do that. Mm -hmm. We also have, we're a place that has always been caring about the environment. Now, at a visceral level, that's because we live in this magnificent environment. But also, we're the place that founded Greenpeace. We're the place that generated David Suzuki. And so our whole culture was thinking, I think, earlier than most places about the environment and what cities were doing to the environment. And because of an accident of history, some very interesting people were in this city, mostly immigrants from other places, not completely, but mostly. Uh, people not just in government, where we did have uh, exceptional leadership happening, uh, but also out in the private sector among the design professions. And even in the neighborhoods with average citizens, you had these really smart people. And uh, so that started a process of thinking that ultimately led to Expo 86. It took a few years where we decided that we could no longer live from that past economy and that past culture. We had to find a new way. And we basically came to the bottom line that we needed to live off our wits and our good looks. Now, what do I mean by mm -hmm. that? We had to, um, we were going to probably have a future based on the ideas economy. We were going to draw people here who could do things in ideas. Uh, we're now, as you know, one of the biggest filmmakers in North America. We are huge animators in North America. Um, and our good looks had a lot to do with tourism. It had to do with drawing people to come and visit us. And, and, and what it did is it also caused people to want to stay and live here, make their lives here, bring their wealth here. And Expo showcased us to the world. But then we had a big challenge. We weren't that place yet. We were aspiring mm -hmm. to be that place. And that's what set off the planning process and the discussion, the debate, the experimentation that took many years to finally come together. I would say it wasn't until the 90s, from the uh, mid-80s, when that really started to come together in a big way, uh, leading to a revitalization of the downtown. By the same token, we had all this land because the rail yards were moving to the suburbs. Um, old industrial activities could no longer afford rents in the core, and they were moving to the suburbs. So you had this imperative to transform along with a lot of land to work with in very good locations and then really smart people to know how to put something together that was very different. In fact, in my book, I say this was the, the time of the counterintuitive city because almost everything we were talking about in that time was just something that other cities weren't even thinking about or caring about. And they thought we were a little out on the far edge somewhere. 
that must have been an incredibly exciting time. And, and um, it, I think this brings us to our three key insights. And we've got a great sort of historical foundation that you've laid and set the scene. And um, in all of our Renique podcasts, we answer the question posed in the title with three key insights. And the first insight that we're going to talk about today is that Vancouver focused on a living first strategy. Maybe you could tell me uh, uh, what, the, what that's all about. It was a very, very simple idea. And it was all based on the proposition of proximity, getting origins and destinations close together. The historic city in the past had uh, all the work being downtown and everyone living out in suburbs. That, that is post-war. Uh, and we said to ourselves, let's bring home and workplace close together. What did that mean in the core city? It meant that we had to bring in tens of thousands of, of people to live in the city, not just the 35,000 who were still there in the West End, but maybe 100,000 more at least to balance out with the number of jobs that were downtown. So we thought, how do we do that? <laughs> Most people at that time hated density. They thought the inner city was a dark place. It was a place you didn't want to be in at night. It was unsafe. Um, it had a lot of negative images. So we said the way to do that is to, is to create everything we could possibly think about that would cause people to want to come and live in this place. Not because someone told them it was a good idea or any other reason, but because they'd be at home and one would say to the other, you know, I'd really love to live downtown. It has this and this and this and this and this. And I think our kids would be better there if they were living downtown. And so we set off on, on this um, whole idea of livability at a higher densities. And we had to tag it. So we tagged it living first. And we said, look, and we said this to the whole world, the development community, the politicians, everything. We said, if you want to come and live in this core city, We'll find a way to make it happen for you. We will support you. We will be on your side. We will change the laws as they needed to change in order to make that happen. And what did that support look like? Well, it, it, we completely changed the whole uh, regulatory system so that we could find wealth that could then be invested in community centers, schools, childcare, green space, the walkway, bikeway system, all the things that people loved and, and needed if they came to live in the core city. Um, we redefined what the units were like. We, we, uh, we went out and, and worked with families with children. And we said, what would you need if you lived in the core city? And we created a set of guidelines. And then we said, when development is building, they have to make 25% of the housing suitable for families with children. Uh, we had a program for low-income housing to make sure that we mixed up. We didn't want the old ghettos like you used to see in the past. Uh, we wanted everyone to be as mixed up as we could make them. Our whole job was to say, we have to entice people to live here. You talk about this sort of interesting mix of business and residential in the downtown core. That, that wasn't something that was done in cities prior, was it? Not really. And, uh, and, and not just... And not just that, we went with a much richer concept. We wanted all kinds of diversity. So we wanted good shopping. Uh, we wanted good public facilities. We wanted people to live. We wanted people to work. We wanted people to live and work in the same place. So we wanted stu work studios and artist studios. We were trying to do everything to give more and more diversity to the city. Now, we missed some places 
we're going to come back to that. I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. trying to say it was perfect, but you have to realize that we're talking about the mid 80s and early 90s when cities were not diversifying, they were going the opposite way. They were homogenizing. If you were a wealthy person, you lived in this suburb. If you were not a wealthy person, you lived in this ghetto. Uh, if you were working, you lived here. If you were in industry, you lived somewhere else. It was all separating. And it was making cities terrible. It was mm-hmm. making a mess. It was impossible to move around and is still in many cities. But we said no. Let's just bring it all together. Let's mix it up. Let's make it very short distances between anything, anywhere you are and anything you want to do. These interesting things have now gelled. We're now, you know, 25 years later, these have gelled into actual principles of smart growth that are being applied around the world. The other day I heard, uh, I I, uh, had a conversation about the mayor of Paris, who's now doing what she calls the 15-minute city. Well, in the late 80s, we were doing the 15 or 20 minute city. We said that, you know, you have to make things close together. You talked about, you know, how majority of uh, housing, multi-unit housing was rental based. But there was something in this in terms of um, having people not only be emotionally invested in a sense of place in the downtown core, but also financially invested. Is that is that, that was a part of it, too? We wanted everyone, as many people as possible, to own a piece of the rock. We said, you know, look, once you're an owner, you're vested. You're going to stay. You're going to work hard to make the city work. You're going you're gonna to attack the problems of the city. You're not going to give up. Unfortunately, and we weren't against rental, just so you know, we wanted rental as well because some people couldn't afford home ownership. But unfortunately, rental doesn't give that sense of I'm here against all odds. I must be here. This is where I've put my wealth. And so it, we had to bring in a lot more home ownership. Now, the first way that happened was in co-ops. There were market co-ops and non-market co-ops, but it wasn't good enough because you couldn't really control your own unit. And that's when the, all the legislation changed. We brought in the, at the provincial level the latest legislation for condominiums, and that led to what we have today. So... You know, at, pe- people certainly made the long-term investment in, in in the bedrock, as you as you said. I, you know, and we're talking about you know how the approach to planning was, but now you've had a chance to sort of see it come to life. I, have you had a chance to to, to revisit uh, and and see what the living first strategy looks like? You know, 20, 30, 40 years on. Well, the the very nice thing is that uh, as a professor, part of your job is in, is to inquire. So I went came together with a professor from. Um, from Australia and 25 students uh, in the um, about 2010. And we did a post-occupancy evaluation of False Creek North, which is an area that I had led all the planning on. It was about five different neighborhoods. Those neighborhoods, not all of them, but most of them were pretty well established, had settled. You could see the problems, you could see the the benefits. Um, And we did this in this post-occupancy evaluation showed us Two things. Number one, an amazingly successful place to live. We had very high uh, rates of people's support, up to 90%. People said, you know, I'm only going out of here in a casket, those kind of issues. And we discovered some problems. Noise was not managed well enough for people. Uh, uh, Funnily enough, uh, we needed to do more to support people, uh, households with dogs, right? 
Um, mm. Some issues that did come out, but what we found, and this is like living proof, is that this neighborhood module works. It is not only workable from a government point of government point of view that you know you can deliver services efficiently and effectively. It works for the consumer. They can live the way they want to live. It has shifted people dramatically from a very unsustainable uh, way of living, which they thought was their only choice once they had a family, uh, to a much more sustainable way of living. It actually is causing people to own less cars, to use public transit, but even more importantly than transit, to use their feet and to use cycling mm. to get around. I will tell you, hundreds of people told us they had never been on a cycle, a bicycle. Uh, until they came and lived in this neighborhood. And then they couldn't think of a better way to get around than that now, or just walking. In other words, um, these ideas that at the time were pretty counterintuitive, because as a community, we acted them out in all of their richness. We didn't leave pieces out. We got the better school. We got the community center fixed. We did the childcare. Because we did it all together, we delivered what people said they wanted and they loved it. Before we get into sort of just talking about some of the challenges, I, I did want to pivot to um, this notion of, of neighborhoods. And, and the second insight is that uh, the, the planning focused on neighborhoods. That's right. We, we very early came to a fundamental belief Partly it was because many of us had been neighborhood planners trying to uh, uh, save and restore the old inner city neighborhoods of the city, but partly because it just made common sense that the neighborhood unit was the perfect framework for everything we were talking about. It was how you got people living and working close together. It was how you delivered social services. It was how you had those what became known as third places after your home and work where people could meet one another and get to know one another. It was how you could get so much spontaneous uh, mutual support among people because they were neighbors. They saw one another every day. They got to know one another. And when you take that and you push that down with densities going up, it meant that many of those people, every year more and more of those people were actually out on foot in the neighborhood, moving around. They weren't in their cars, isolated from one another. And as they were out on foot, they were meeting one another and they were becoming uh, a real community. So this neighborhood idea just fit perfectly what we were trying to do. Now, Vancouver was a lucky place because the whole city had been structured almost from the beginning in neighborhoods. Uh, the streetcars, when they first went out at the turn of the century, created the same kind of focal points. So we had that idea. Interestingly enough, during that same period, a regional plan was put together that established that same principle to go all over this region. And then nothing happened for years and years. But now you're seeing that neighborhood concept in North Vancouver, in Surrey, in Coquitlam, in Port Moody. Those neighborhoods are coming together all over our region. And it's making an incredibly 
resilient urban form for the future, as COVID has shown us. But what I want everyone to understand is that Vancouver is now in a very creative process of creating what I call the new suburbs. These are places that have the diversity and nodes. These are and when you when you say Vancouver, you're talking about Metro. Is that right? I'm talking about Metro Vancouver now. Yeah. Vancouver is in a very creative process of taking that that neighborhood concept, which we, yes, I will say, modeled in the core city very, very effectively, and now applying that all over this region. So if you're a young family, my advice to you is not to necessarily look downtown, but is to look at one of the transit-oriented neighborhoods. There are 20 or 25 of them that all have the same kind of diversity, the same kind of of uh, support, community support, the same kind of building of neighborliness that we discovered how to do in the downtown. So the new urbanism is about how to structure the great majority of Canadian cities, 60% of Canadian cities are suburban, into Mm -hmm. an urban pattern which has proximity, uh, association of uses, neighborliness, and all the things that the neighborhood unit gives us. Like kind of like Port Moody. Yeah, Port Moody's a one. You'll take your trip on transit, but you get out there and you're going to find a very pleasant community. You'll find mm-hmm. people are close together. There, there's all kinds of diversity. There's the same quality bakeries out there that there are in, in downtown Vancouver. The same quality merchandise, all the things that it used to be you'd only see in a core city, especially if that city had had become a living city. Uh, you now can see that all over the region. That is, in fact, the invention of this generation that, by the way, is only about half done. Yeah, fair enough. Well, and in some cases, I mean, there's also been an opportunity to learn from some of those challenges and still create these nascent uh, city centers, energy centers. I mean, Surrey City Center, as an example, is an incredible um, experiment uh, in learning from the past and planning for the future. It is. And, and what you see happening, and it's beautiful to watch, is that each part of our region is doing it in their own way. If you go to North Van uh, City, Mm -hmm. you'll find a delightful neighborhood emerging, which is very different than if you go to Surrey City Center or if you go to, uh, you know, uh, Coquitlam, wherever you might be going. Uh, We're getting the kind of diversity that allows consumers to choose. Do they want this kind of character or that kind of character? And there's still a place for the inner city neighborhoods and for the downtown neighborhoods to also offer a choice that others can't offer. It's very exciting when you think about it that way. And I think we get we get kind of mired in in some of the challenges. And I think it's really important in moving forward that we do face some of those challenges. So so let's talk about that because our third insight is despite all of these improvements to urban life, um, Vancouver still faces challenges. Yeah. Cities are never complete. Cities are always in a process of realization. One generation mm-hmm. attacks problems. And even those solutions create problems for the next generation, as well as new problems. And new ideas start to be brought into the urban scene. Uh, For example, we see the share economy starting to have amazing uh, possibilities all over the world that we haven't yet seen in Vancouver. But the two big ones that came out of my generation to this generation, one, obviously, is affordability. 
And it's not affordability for everyone. It's affordability for middle-income Vancouverites. Uh, we're still doing a decently good job of supporting low-income people. Obviously, high-income people, it's fine, uh, the, the situation, the, the choices they have. But it's that middle-income group. And so now, this new generation has to establish a secure sector of middle-income housing in the same way in the past. It was our job to, to have a secure section, sector of low-income housing. That has to happen. There are a lot of tools that we invented that can be used. Uh, community amenity contributions, the suite of policies that came with rezonings, many of those tools can be used, but also government has to come in at every level and help support this. So that's one of the issues. The other issue, of course, is this sweeping problem of homelessness. Uh, and it's not really a housing problem. Although it has a manifestation of that, it's a problem of uh, mental illness and no treatment. It's a problem of addictions uh, and no treatment. It's a society that has left a component of people absolutely on their own. And of course, they can't find housing. They can't find treatment, much less housing. Indeed. And so what do we see more and more of those people? Now, during COVID, that's been added by another group of people, people who have fallen out of the middle class and lost their homes and lost their apartments. Uh, but that's, that's just adding to what is an endemic problem. In my day, we did not see that much homelessness. We, we, we had programs. We had the Vancouver Agreement, for example, led by Judy Rogers, that really made sure that we were finding solutions for mental health and addictions. That's all gone. You know, uh, we had, we invested a lot in low-income housing, so we were delivering low-income housing. Well, we're not investing enough anymore. And so mm -hmm. these issues are where the new generation has to pick up and they have to move with the same kind of courage, the same kind of inventiveness, uh, the same kind of experimentation that we saw back in the 80s. Back in the 80s, though, I mean, in fairness, you, you presented the sort of uh, scene for your career and, and that of the other planners of it as a time of great excitement and possibility. Um, but I'm sure it wasn't always like that for you as a planner. Where did you go when you had to find inspiration and manufacture that sense of possibility and a positive future when you were facing some really difficult issues? Well, we, we did then what people must do now. We went to one another. We faced one another. We asked one another what the issues were, what the solutions were. We found right here. We didn't have to go elsewhere. We found right here in our town amazingly creative people if they're just given the opportunity to express that creativity and show how it would work and experiment. And if you have politicians that will try something and they're not afraid of failure if something doesn't work. Yes, we, um, we tapped into the movements of the new urbanism, as it was called, that were happening elsewhere in the world. Yes, many of us came from other parts of the world. And so we brought our ideas with us. But the magic doesn't happen on those roads. The magic happens face to face in our public places, in our meeting places, as people said, well, yeah, there's a good idea. Let's try it. Let's do something different. This generation, just to be clear, is the best educated generation in the history of the world. 
They have been educated not just with technical education, but with an ethical education and an education of how to do things. And so they have to be empowered and they have to be told and supported as they try to do the the innovations, the experimentations that, that are needed. What do you think is going to be the key to having people uh, accept density as a solution to our housing problems in places where it's not necessarily present today? Well, first thing is, and this was the problem of my generation, the challenge of my generation. First thing is we had to make density delicious. Density mm. in your mother and father's day when they were young people, it was hideous. Yeah. It was not pleasant. It was not safe. They didn't have enough room. They were disconnected. It was hard to get to know your neighbors. There was no community facilities and still aren't in many cities. We had to make it very, very appealing. And that's number one. Number two, we we then started, we started this process just before Anne and I uh, gave up and, uh, you know, moved on, not gave up, but moved on, uh, of going into neighborhoods and saying, okay, nice neighborhood, but your kids can't live here. What what could we do to adjust the neighborhood to make it better for you, to give you an option for your kids? Or a big house, you want to move into a smaller home as you get older. Where is that at? Do you have to move to another part of the city? And we started seeing in Vancouver neighborhoods, and you see it a lot in, in most Vancouver neighborhoods, we started seeing new things being added in. We started seeing housing over shops. We started seeing infill townhouses. We started seeing secondary suites legalized. Then we started seeing laneway housing. Uh, Then we started seeing extra sites that were left over built a little bit more intensely. Then we started seeing things being added so that uh, services were better for those people. People started getting creative, but the key was that we worked with people. We didn't say to people, you've got to take 10,000 units or what. We started just working with people slowly, finding those answers. And everywhere we did that, we found answers. Got it. Um, that's, a, that's a great sort of segue into our conclusion, which, which I wanted to ask you, you know, what are some of the uh, uh, things that you're seeing in Vancouver and the way it's evolving uh, that are really exciting? And you, you've mentioned, um, you know, these suburban, urban neighborhoods as, as, as we talked about Port Moody and North Vancouver and a few of the other ones. What are some other things that you're seeing that are, that are really interesting? I, I, I'm very interested in some of the experiments on the kinds of housing units that, that uh, are there. We're seeing a, re, uh, a reinvigoration of uh, rental housing as a, a development model that we haven't seen before. I, I'm fascinated by small units that uh, sometimes are being called targeted for uh, students or whatever. Uh, but now I want to see some of these new housing ideas brought even further. And we're in a place where we can do that. Having said that, I also want to see a rededication to the positive side of the condominium. The positive side, which was your own home ownership at the level you could afford, you having uh, an investment in the future of your own community uh, and something that you could then use for the other things in your life later in life. I talk to a lot of young people who say to me, it's easier for you to say it's no longer the era of the condominium, 
because you're living off the benefits of that. And you're saying to us, we should just be renters. Well, I think we have to find a way to get more and more of the new generation into some form of home ownership. It may be through a rental program that converts to home ownership. It may be nonprofit home ownership. Uh, it may be co-op home ownership, but some way that they are, they are investors in the future of our city, in the future of their communities, in the future of their neighborhoods. Because as investors, they simply will not let it go negative. They won't let it go downhill. They will make sure that it stays the great place that we're now enjoying. Larry, that's a great way to end this conversation. And um, um, I really appreciate your time and it's very thought provoking and you can you can uh, get your book at uh, great independent bookstores uh, all over the lower mainland, uh, or I should say Metro Vancouver, um, uh, Vancouverism and, and some of your other books as well. Is there a website that people can go to uh, um, uh, to find out more? For Vancouverism, uh, UBC Press, you can get it immediately from there. And even my first book was was done by Island Press, is distributed in Canada through UBC Press. So uh, uh, both books, Eco Design for Cities and Suburbs and Vancouverism, uh, are easy to uh, to access from UBC Press. While we mentioned where you could find Larry's book, we have a limited supply of copies of Vancouverism available. Uh, so if you'd like a copy, email us at info at and we'll get it into your hands while supplies last. Larry Beasley, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure, Peter. The Rennie Podcast is a Rennie production. It's recorded on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. I'm Peter Edmonds. Thanks for listening. <laughs>